This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. A 35-year veteran of the fragrance industry, Teo Spilka has held executive positions in New York, Geneva, and Paris and has called Fermaniche the largest privately owned perfume and taste business in its industry, his home for the last 29 years. He is Global Vice President of Strategic Licensing and Business Development for the company. In recent years, Teo identified new fragrance licensing opportunities throughout the United States and abroad, signing exclusive business development, distribution, and brand licensing agreements for Fermaniche and its diverse clients in the international global beauty industry. Coming up, you'll hear Teo share how he has facilitated many notable industry launches and licensing agreements for well-known brands and personalities like Justin Bieber, Katy Perry, Mary J. Blige, and the Yankees organization. Cher, Ford, Lionel Richie, and many, many more, to name just a few. You'll hear some of the behind-the-scenes stories and how he takes pride in knowing which international markets are looking for these big opportunities on the licensing front. He also brings incredible added value to the international business portfolio. Teo is an incredible industry resource, a leader, and inspiration with an unmatched perspective on how to put dreams in a bottle for the global fragrance industry. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Hey, it's so great to have you here. Can you share a little bit about your journey in the fragrance industry and how you have evolved um, over the course of your career? I'd be happy to. Thank you, Abby. Well, I've been in the industry for just over 35 years. And um, I guess when you go back that far, I got into the industry because uh, I answered an advertisement in the New York Times. <laughs> and uh, it was for a, a sales and marketing assignment in either Tokyo or Geneva. And I chose the latter because I'd gone to school in Switzerland. So uh, I started there, but I came back to the United States after a three-year assignment. Um, and uh, I've been in the industry ever since, and I've been at my current company for 29 of those years. But throughout all of those years, one of the most wonderful things about this industry is I was able to kind of design my own destiny. And if I wanted to go overseas, I was afforded that opportunity. Uh, I was able to change responsibilities numerous times. I was offered assignments, territorial assignments, such as Latin America and in Europe, uh, as well as in the United States in my current position, which is a global role where um, I've uh, my career has evolved into um, uh, overseeing a global licensing and um, a strategic new business development role. And uh, it's very exciting because um, it takes you many places. You meet very many interesting people and celebrities and designers and athletes, musical artists and so forth and uh, retailers and everything in between. So it's been truly exciting. It's been diverse and um, it's kept me extremely motivated all these years. 
Wow, that's an, such an exciting story. So you really started from the ground up, like the most organic way you could. Yeah. Um, and how did you ever think, you know, before that point when you started your career that you would end up working in fragrance? Is that something that was part of your life before? Uh, it's that... a very interesting question because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was actually out of college. I was recruited to America's oldest department store at the time, which was Lord & Taylor used to be Lord and Taylor, but, uh, you know, when they introduced it and they said, you know, this has been around since the days of Thomas Jefferson, I was, wow, that's incredible. So I worked in uh, the buying offices and then I worked in operations, but basically I was working on the finished product side of the business. I found this advertisement in the New York Times and it sounded great, but it was oddly vague. All it said was about a geographic assignment in sales and marketing. I mean, you couldn't be more broad than that. But I applied and three months later uh, of interviews in English and in French, I uh, discovered what the industry was. <laughs> and uh, it's not that they were really hiding it. Uh, the fact that it's Swiss and uh, the fact that they're very discreet in Switzerland and, you know, uh, it's kind of neutral. Um, the idea was that I learned about what the industry was and I really didn't know. And like probably some consumers, I still felt Mr. Armani was mixing his own perfumes in a lab somewhere. Uh, when in fact, there are a series of companies that do this and they do it as suppliers to the licensees for those brands, which I didn't know either. So I got to know the industry from that side going forward. And I learned about essential oil and so forth. And then when I was brought over to Switzerland to the headquarters of the company, um, I spent three years doing every assignment conceivably in consumer research and rolling barrels on the factory floor uh, to uh, product management, international sales. Um, I trained as a perfumer for three straight months. Um, I handled raw materials, uh, you know, uh, everything leading up to a very, very solid foundation so that when I returned from Europe, I had this bedrock of knowledge about the industry, about perfume, where these materials come from, uh, the different true differences between natural, synthetic, uh, or man-made or reconstituted materials. And it was extremely exciting. And I just got instilled with this 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 passion for the industry and wanting to be like a walking encyclopedia about where things come from and when products were launched uh what year something came out um you know who these designers and captains of industry were and uh, it was extremely exciting and i love talking about it that's so exciting. You know, as I'm thinking about, I remember those days with the New York Times, actually, I shouldn't admit that, but circling a job <laughs> that you would see. And I don't know, circling somehow I always had ended up in a headhunter's office and they were trying to recruit me to work for them. It was, oh, April, you're too young. You won't know this, but that's what it was like <laughs> back then. But, you know, it's such a fascinating conversation, Teo, because you really learned a business and an industry. And, you know, thinking about our audience and what people take away, you know, what would you suggest to people that, that want to be and learn about fragrance? Because there is such a depth of history and knowledge and, 
insightfulness and beauty. I mean, it is an encyclopedia, and a lot of it is unknown to the consumer in the world. And, you know, there are people that want to be in the fragrance industry because they're so curious, but where do you even begin? Well, it's a very, very good question. It's one that can be approached from many different sides, certainly. You know, one might say years ago, what we do is we create dreams in a bottle. It's all about imagination. That's one of the things I love about beauty in and of itself is because it permits one to dream. Uh, and it can be different for each person and for each motivation. So there's no set rule. It, it can be whatever you want it to be. But perfume enables one to imagine. It went from the old taglines of the 70s with Calgon to take me away to uh, just wanting to be romantic, um, to want to be attractive, wanting to feel confident. Um, I don't leave the house without it. Um, you know, it's part of a ritual. There are many different reasons why people wear perfume, but it was basically an emotion. And it, while it still is an emotion today, without a doubt, um, I think the industry as a whole has evolved immensely in the sense now that consumers especially have become so much more savvy. They want to know not only through labeling as to what it is that they're uh, ingesting with respect to fragrance, what it is, what is it that I'm inhaling? What is it that I'm putting on my skin? What is it that I'm leaving on my skin? What is it that I'm rinsing off my skin? And so consumers have become very curious about the ingredients that has led to a lot of uh, legislation, which the industry has had to deal with. Um, and where labeling was simply water, perfume, uh, uh, and perhaps some pigments, red 22 or uh, a particular dye color, um, you couldn't get away with just perfume or fragrance or parfum anymore. You had to disclose. Uh, previously, it was a trade secret. Now, uh, manufacturers are actually intent on having this transparent labeling for their consumers. A, because in some cases they have to if there are allergens. And uh, B, because they want to take the initiative and say, you know, we've got nothing to hide. Here's everything in our fragrance. You may not be able to pronounce some of the material names. Uh, because it's not all jasmine, rose, and sandalwood, um, but uh, at least it's there. And it's for people, if they want to do research on it or if they, they, they just want to know, everything is today a much larger outer carton copy paragraph on, uh, on a particular uh, uh, fragrance uh, box. So uh, the industry has really evolved with respect to people wanting to dream and enjoy it and delight uh, themselves with it and others. Uh, they also want to know all about the fragrance, the materials, where is it from? Are they responsibly sourced? Uh, is it fair trade? Are these from you know, uh, responsible uh, uh, factories? Um, what are the labor laws, et cetera, et cetera. So there is an awful lot to be told about fragrance today. Um, but in the end, for me personally, it still comes down to a wonderful emotion that really makes and helps me dream. Wow. That is incredible to hear about that, how things have evolved so much and the trends. 
that in what consumers are demanding right now. And I'm really curious. I I also have seen like looking into, you know, a little bit about your career that uh, and also the industry that you have really witnessed the growth of the personality tied to fragrance, which is and the personality could range. Obviously, it's celebrities were the first. It's really evolved into all kinds of personalities and all kinds of industries. So I'm curious to hear a little bit about that and how you've seen that grow, because we all think of Elizabeth Taylor and her White Diamonds franchise as like one of the the originals and how many more have launched since then. And now celebrities have fragrance empires of their own. And now you're seeing athletes and other kinds of brands that are tied to fragrances and sure. how how you've seen that grow and change over time. Yeah, it was, it's, it's been incredible. <laughs> it's been incredible to see. You know, we all think about Elizabeth Taylor as the pioneer and so on. She's clearly been mostly the successful, longest running, but there were many, many celebrities before her too. Uh, you know, back in the 70s with, uh, there's an African-American actor, Billy Dee Williams, you know, had, had, a, had a fragrance. Uh, you had French actresses uh, who were there, uh, men's actors like Alain Delon, and they all had their own fragrances. But, um, you know, this really exploded in the late 80s with Elizabeth Taylor and then got a second booster in the uh, 2000s with Jennifer Lopez um, and everything since. And our company has done probably between... 50 and 65% of the celebrities uh, in creating fragrances for them. Uh, and it's, it, 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 it uh, warranted the creation of a, a special division that, that I created to be able to address this business and not just in being solicited by marketers who signed these brands, these personalities, but uh, to bring these personalities and celebrities to our international roster of manufacturers um, uh, because we saw the white space and said, you're not touching this demographic or you're not, uh, you, you're too heavy handed in women's, you need a really good men's concept or, um, you know, you're really strong here in the U.S., but you need something that's really going to resonate in Europe or in Latin America. So um, I look for that white space. And of course, I bring ideas to them. And in a lot of the cases, if I don't know the celebrities directly, uh, I know their managers or I know their publicists or I know their lawyers or uh, I know their agents in some cases. And it's not by mistake I put the agents last because <laughs> they're the hardest to deal with. But uh, nevertheless, it's such an exciting industry to be able to work with people like this. And, you know, um, we're working with, uh, you know, a celebrity named Cher, of course, the singer. Um, and I remember when I was much younger and watching her and just, you know, being mesmerized by her beauty and her singing ability and her talent and later her acting ability when she won an Oscar in 80, 88 or 87, I think, uh, for Moonstruck. Um, that's when her first fragrance came out. But, you know, doing it again, you know, launching, you know, shortly Dolly Parton or being associated with Katy Perry or One Direction or Justin Bieber or, you know, Alessandra uh, Ambrosio or, you know, many, 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 many more. Uh, every single one has been different, uh, has been exciting. And getting to work with, you know, global names has been just so interesting and motivating for me to be able to 
call up a favorite mar uh, manufacturer or client of ours and say, would you be interested in? Um, and uh, ultimately see that product come out onto the market. That's been really exciting. But um, it's changed over a lot of years. And I think it was in its heyday around 2006 to 2008, I would say would be around the pinnacle of that because I had every housewife calling me saying, you know, I should be doing a fragrance for our show. And, um, uh, you know, some of them you can say yes to, many of them you have to say no to, because ultimately it's the marketer that has to invest. And if I know my marketer clients well, I can not necessarily speak for them, but I can be pretty sure of what they would agree to do and what they wouldn't. So, uh, but uh, everyone came out from everywhere, from American Idol finalists to Housewives of New York to, you know, you, you name it. Uh, many people I had never heard of before. Uh, and I don't profess to know everybody, but even today it's gotten even a little more fragmented with now influencers, uh, also, uh, who have their own communities who feel they want to be in the space as well. So it's, uh, it's, it's very diverse, but you really need a lot of interesting people. I'm sure. Plastic. This week, we are buzzing about plastic packaging in the beauty industry. Euromonitor reported that the beauty industry produced 76.8 billion units of plastic packaging in 2017. I'm Jessica Quick. And I'm Denise Dente. We're the founders of Buzz Beauty, and we wrote a book called Whip Fire Money, an international guidebook for beauty brands looking to go global. Wow, Jess, that was a really interesting intro and topic to this. Uh, very timely for sure. What we are really seeing is customers are so frustrated with overpackaged beauty products and demanding a lot of change. So much so that we're seeing that governments are actually considering changing their policy on plastic, kind of like we've seen in the UK. No, in fact, the UK government is already talking about beauty samples and that they may deem them as single use, which, as you know, Denise, would put them in the same law as straws, stirs, and bags, which would forbid any of us from using plastic in our samples. Eek. Wow. Considering how long packaging takes to design, now really is going to be the time to consider making that packaging pivot. Oh, plastic pivot. I love that. If you want to stay informed, minimizing your plastic packaging usage, and to keep buzzing with us, head on over to buzzbeauty.com backslash diary. That's buzzbeauty, B-E-A-U-T-E, buzzbeauty.com backslash diary. These are such well-known, branded names, celebrities. What really makes the fragrance, once it's in the market, successful? You know, what takes it from the name <laughs> of Dolly? I mean, of course, she has a huge fan base. And she, I mean, these are people that we all grew up with, that we love. There's a whole new world out there. What's going to make an impact today in the world of fragrance in different communities? And how does that brand... I was listening to someone, you know, it's all tied into the media play, right? How does it all evolve? So what what do you think the future of that looks like, Teo, and the longevity of a brand in the market to have success? 
Boy, that's uh, that is the ultimate question, Abby. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm that, that sorry, I'm that interviewer. I can't help it. <laughs> I'm guessing that didn't come fortuitously, um, but uh, I get probably asked that the most. What does it take to have a successful product? How do we get there? <laughs> and it there are a lot of things that make a difference. Years ago, you would say whoever had the biggest uh, ad spend, um, you know, could certainly we, you know, you'd see these articles in Women's Wear Daily coming out saying they have this war chest of thirty million dollars that they can spread out. I one one of the biggest examples is, uh, you know, uh, back in uh, I want to say in the uh, early '90s, I want to say around '92, '93, I think there was a a, a a new Armani product which was called Geo. GIO, uh, women's fragrance. And we would see these advertisements everywhere on buses and taxis that said, who is Geo? I don't know if you remember that, but, you know, it was a woman with dark uh, Ray-Bans and uh, I think a dark wide-brimmed hat. And uh, who is it? Who is it? And just developing this incredible um, story, uh, this buildup, uh, which ultimately led to a, a launch party that was rumored to be a million dollars just for the launch party uh, for editors, retailers, et cetera, et cetera, uh, celebrities. But um, in the end, it wasn't that successful. Uh, and it wasn't, frankly, until the men's fragrance, Aqua Di Gio, that came out. Um, that, was, um, that was really the big splash. And that really resonated for so many reasons. And luckily, uh, we created that perfume. And so many women also enjoyed wearing that men's fragrance. It was just, you know, the volume was incredible. But um, you could have all the money in the world and, you know, spend it all and trying to build the awareness, build the concept, help people understand the concept. But um, in the end, it could be simply not a matter of money because we've seen many beautiful brands develop quite successfully, like Le Labo, which just started as a dream of uh, two young men. Um, you know, and became, you know, a cult, popular, incredible concept that was really considered downtown and people really began to follow it. And it, 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 you know, it's some of it's word of mouth and, you know, some of the best perfumes never even had advertising. So, um, it can be the advertising, but for me, I, Abby, I think it all really boils down to one thing and that's authenticity. Um, I think that with respect to celebrity fragrances, um, there are several that have not been successful and there are others that have been very successful. And if I could just boil it all down to the ones that have been successful, it's been due to the authenticity. It's due to the fact that, um, you know, Justin Bieber and Usher, as examples, you know, would come in. Uh, to our uh, our studio and they would smell the products. They would uh, talk to the perfumers. They they wanted to know about particular materials and bases. Um, and whenever they were interviewed, I remember when Access Hollywood came into our studio to talk to these folks, um, you know, they would speak. There was no script. They were, they actually genuinely learned about the materials, where they were from, where, you know, Jasmine coming from Egypt, and uh, a French uh, uh, May Rose uh, and, and other, other such materials. And uh, Mary J. Blige saying, I, I grew up smelling this, these white florals and this honeysuckle and so forth. And, 
you know, these are stories from the heart. And um, uh, uh, when Mary J. Blige launched on uh, HSN, where people couldn't smell the fragrance first, she sold 71,000 bottles in the first 41, 48 hours. 71,000 bottles. That's a good launch for Macy's uh, in that time period. And this is where no one could uh, smell it. But her storytelling was so compelling, so genuine, so from the heart for her fragrance that was called My Life at the time. And uh, it was just truly compelling and authentic. And um, she also, she came in, she smelled. Uh, we had a lab coat made for her. She was in the laboratory. We did that with Ariana Grande. She would smell. She wanted to know about the materials. These are still fragrances that are around. And they're around because they're compelling. Obviously, the people are very popular. They continue to promote them, but they genuinely participated in the development of those products. No one phoned it in in that way, because I think the fans pick up on that and they know whether someone really rolled up their sleeves and really made choices as it relates to raw materials. So um, I would say that's one of the main ingredients for success, Abby, is that it be authentic, believable, and 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 the story being compelling. You know, it's so interesting because I'm such a fragrance lover since I'm little. You know, I've always um, worn different fragrances through different decades and journeys of my life, and they became part of me. And I think that's something else that resonates where people will smell a scent on someone and say, oh, you smell so good. What is that? Do you think that's such, because that happened to me always. And, and that's why I love the industry so much, because it was a part of my childhood and my background, my grandmother's, whatever. But, but the memory, right, and the, the scent of reminding you of something, do you think the word of mouth and smelling a scent and a perfume and a, you know, on someone is a huge driver still for people to go and say, wow, that smelled so good on you. I want it. Yeah. I mean, that's, you hit it on the head. I think, uh, I, I, you know, it's interesting when people or I meet new people and they say, well, what do you do? <laughs> and, uh, Not what do you smell like? <laughs> they don't smell you first. <laughs> I say, what do you do? I said, well, I smell fragrance all day. <laughs> I, uh, my company creates perfume. And people are really interested in that. And I said, well, it's interesting. It's beautiful. I'm passionate about it. I really enjoy it uh, for many different reasons. But the honest truth is it's actually also very hard. And the reason for that is because I sell a product that you can't see and you can't touch. This isn't like a pair of blue jeans or a wonderful designer pair of shoes where you can look at them, hold them, enjoy them. You can see the famous Le Boutin Rouge uh, underneath, you know, I'm dealing with a product that, you know, unless I cross the path of a person I'm walking behind and I'm smelling what we call their sillage, uh, their wake, um, and I'm compelled by that, I either really don't like it or I might just love it and I may walk behind that person a little more. Uh, but the idea is that I'm enjoying it and it's taking me somewhere and I'm thinking, what does that mean to me? It really smells incredible. And that fragrance in and of itself, because I'm in the industry, I'm trying to identify the notes and I'm trying to uh, uh, remember what the brand is perhaps. Uh, you know, I'm testing myself rather than just smelling with my 
my, my mind, my nose, instead of smelling with my head and trying to think it through intellectually, the best thing, of course, is to smell just with your nose and take it in, enjoy it, and see where it takes you. And um, I find that the compelling chemistry and uh, reactions that take place in the brain of taking you back 40 years. Oh, my, my, my first girlfriend wore that. Oh, I remember that. Or when Sarah Jessica Parker used to say, you know, one of the combinations of scents in the cocktail I create is a fragrance called Love's Baby Soft uh, from many, many years ago. It's like, I remember exactly what that smelled like and that lemon freshness, uh, if you will. And, you know, because it takes people back. It's a wonderful memory, you know. But as I said, in the end, it's imagination, it's emotion. And unless you get into someone's personal space or you're walking behind someone and you pick it up on someone that transports you to another place, either a place of wonder and delight or a place where you know, I don't necessarily want to be near this, this guy who's wearing this fragrance, which is too strong and I don't like it. But in most cases, it's a very, very pleasant experience. But um, as I said, it's very emotional and I enjoy it. And I think that that's really a, a key driver for people's love of perfume because of not necessarily what it does to others in terms of attraction or, you know, uh, uh, the impression, this is who I am, uh, but also what it does to them as to when they wear it, what it does for them when they wear something beautiful like that. And that's the delight that we all seek to create. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the differences in developing fragrances for to translate personalities of celebrities and that type of actual human being versus brands or, um, you know, fashion houses and that type of thing. Is there a different approach there and how does that work? Well, um, it's similar in the sense that there's what we call a brief and the brief can be what is the definition? What is the DNA of that brand? Uh, that's what has to inspire and drive our perfumer's inspiration. And um, that helps the entire team who work on developing a fragrance because it is a team effort on understanding exactly what that brand stands for. So if we're working on a fragrance for Jimmy Choo or we're working on a fragrance for Louboutin or we're working on a fragrance for Valentino, um, it's, it's really under, important to understand the differences, the DNA, what's important, ensuring we don't step on the toes of something that was created four years ago and is still actively sold in the marketplace. So there's an olfactive profile, but the brand managers, the brand keepers, have to provide as much information as they would like. They can give us demographic information. They can tell us where the brand has gone. Obviously, the fragrance has to be connected with the rest of the brand and the other categories. We don't want the fragrance to be a total disconnect and make believe the fragrance is something that is, is totally against the values of the designer. So it's great to work directly with the designer if there is one and um, to be able to understand that creative vision, whether it's, you know, Gisquier or whether it's Tom Ford or whether it's um, any of the best known designers uh, around the world, uh, Sandro Michele at Gucci, for instance, to work closely with their vision 
um, to say, this is what I'm all about. I'm about openness or youth or freedom or a little bit retro or what it is that we're working on. We want to make sure that we use notes that are compatible with that DNA. Um, I've also worked with designers who have asked us to come in their showroom uh, who have said, there is no brief. You're in my showroom. Look around you. This is my world. And we'll have perfumers go up and feel the fabrics or check a sequin or feel a button or look at different colors and so forth. And all of this influences, I think, ultimately how the fragrance is created. With respect to a living individual like a personality, the, the personality is going to give us things that are very important to them. Um, when I worked with uh, Lionel Richie a couple of years ago and I went out to his home in California, he had incredibly beautiful fruit trees um, on his property that were important to him. He had many uh, uh, objects of um, interest, objets d'art from all around the world in his travels to the Middle East and to uh, Europe and uh, wonderful places that were important. And we got influenced, if you look at his fragrance out there now, which is called Hello uh, by Lionel Richie, um, there's a certain amount of grill work on the outside of the bottle, and that was taken from his front gate, uh, you know, or and, and a cabinet that he had um, uh, in his home. So uh, there is a lot of symbolism. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the celebrity will give us, um, you know, uh, uh, an important dress of theirs to look at. Um, I, I, I remember when uh, I went into one celebrity's home in, in, in Beverly Hills and she said, you have to come with me into my bathroom. Um, and, and in there were, was a collection of fragrances, which she loved mixing and playing with and so forth. And she said, it's very important that you understand why I like these. Um, uh, and then there are other people I work with who say to the question, what do you wear? Say, I, I, I don't wear anything right now because I haven't created it yet. Ah, so they'll, 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 they'll say, you know, they, they know what they want. They know what they want. It may not be on the market yet, but that will be the direction I'm given. They'll tell me exactly what they want. They will know up front what they want. And then the rest of it is just somewhat subjective because most people have a very limited vocabulary of 12 to 14 words to describe perfume. The top two being fresh and clean, of course, but um, I will help extract some of that emotion and those descriptors to help us create something that is very compatible with who that person or who that what, what that brand is. And that's very important to get it right as best as possible. Wow. That's such incredible storytelling. Teo, I think you need to write a book. Do you need an agent? We should get on that right now. <laughs> I, I there got really a lot. <laughs> is, I, I'm sure. Well, there's such depth in history and knowledge. And, you know, these are stories that I think people want to know about, you know, and, and it's a, an exciting moment to be a storyteller and for fragrance, especially because as everyone's been home, the category has really exploded. But it's at this point in the show where we get to know a little bit more about you and learn about the personal side of Teo Spilka. Have you taken a look at StoryDot yet? Every brand and every product has a story to tell, and you can't successfully sell that brand or product without telling the story. 
StoryDot delivers your story wherever you want it to be heard. You can meet your customers at each point in their journey. Connecting the dots between your business and the consumer to enhance engagement, experience, and conversion. I encourage you to take a look at StoryDot at StoryDot.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-D-O-T.com. And now... It's hitting the pan. So we have a salon chair that we spin. It's actually a kitchen chair right now since we've been home. And I'm going to spin that kitchen chair now, and it lands on April. Right. Well, I'm so curious to find out because obviously you have been thoroughly engrossed in the fragrance industry for decades now. What are your personal favorite fragrance notes? What... What do you wear? What do you love? What do you look for in a scent? Uh, I get asked that from time <laughs> to time because it's my business, so to speak. And, you know, while some people say, well, I don't have a favorite because I'm always testing new things and so forth. But uh, you cleverly said, what notes do I like? And uh, I can tell you by two of my favorite fragrances, one of them is called Eau d'Orange Hermès. And the other is uh, an older fragrance, which came out in 1966, called Eau Sauvage, are two of my favorite fragrances. They're both, ironically, androgynous, but they both have wonderful notes. Now, Eau Sauvage was originally positioned as a men's fragrance, but one of the masterful uh, uh, things about that uh, fragrance is that it contains such a high degree of floralcy for a men's fragrance. Uh, the perfumer who created it, a man named Edmond Rudnitska, uh, who was a genius, um, created such incredible notes and really was very bold for that time. Um, and it's been around since the 60s, as I said, but I personally like it very much. Uh, it's not what I would call a top seller in this country. Uh, but um, it's it's tried and true, and I absolutely love it. And of course, they've created a new modern rendition of it called Sauvage, which was publicized by Johnny Depp. Big advertising budget for that. But um, I like the original. And the reason I like the original and the reason why I like the Hermes product uh, is because it's very citrusy. Um, it's clean smelling. Both of them have incredible energetic bursts of energy when you first spray it on. Um, They're both incredibly identifiable. They both have a great deal of signature for me. And they both evolve quite a bit as the fragrance ages. So those are attributes um, and notes that I really enjoy. That light, crisp, citrusy element, the woody elements of a material called pedigrin, for instance, which is very clean smelling, very classic, which is a little bit of who I am with dashes of color. I really enjoy those particular notes on fragrances that I enjoy wearing. And then there are other fragrances that I don't wear, but I enjoy their notes as well. And those tend to be have very warm dry down, very enveloping dry down, like a cashmere blanket, for instance, which just make you feel, you know, just warm all over and bring a smile to your face. So those, those are some of the things that I really enjoy. Mm, wow. Love that. Amazing. 
Now we all want to smell those. <laughs> I was going to say, Teo, when are we having coffee? I can't We're wait so... to smell you. <laughs> so I'm going to spill. I, 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 you mentioned that I, I have to. What? I have to say that one thing. Uh, it's it's so interesting. You mentioned coffee. Um, you know, one of the myths that I love to dispel have to do with coffee, uh, because it's been this, you know, idea that as you smell multiple fragrances, uh, this this notion of smelling coffee or coffee beans uh, will somehow neutralize and revitalize uh, one's olfactive muscle, if you will. And you don't relax and reboot your olfactive muscle by smelling another odor. The idea is to uh, put your nose into a neutral space like the, you know, your elbow on some fabric, for instance, um, rest for a moment, and then you're fresh and you can go out and smell more things. So wow, um, interesting. that's what came to my mind when yeah, I Where'd that come from? Nope. That's a fallacy that everybody thinks. Smell nope. the coffee, coffee beans. beans. It's true. They even put them out, right? In, they do. Out a lot. I can't tell you how many events I've been to where they've had that. Smell it's the coffee. Definitely. It's good to know. I always said, I was like, that's the title of the book. Don't smell the coffee beans. (laughs) Exactly. Smell a cashmere blanket instead. So I'm going to spin the chair again in the kitchen (laughs) and um, it's going to land on me. So I'm thinking very um, deeply about what this question should be about your personal life. And I think I'm going to go in the direction of the dream. Okay. So if you were dreaming of a vacation spot that you love the most, that speaks to you, where is it and what would it smell like? That doesn't exist now? No, no, it can exist. I'm not that crazy. <laughs> you didn't have to make up the whole... <laughs> Well, it can be uh, a me- I, it can be a memory. It could be a memory, right. something that that makes you feel good and speaks to you. Well, um, you may not know that I'm a competitive cyclist, and um, I compete all over the country um, with my bike. Um, all of my races were suspended last year for obvious reasons, but. Uh, it started up this year, thankfully, um, that kind of enables me to clear my head and, uh, the training that's involved around that, of course, um, it's a lot of miles every week I've competed internationally as well. And I did one of the most storied climbs in the Tour de France, uh, which is called the Mont Ventoux. And the Mont Ventoux is a very famous climb that goes about 2000 meters. And, um, it's not easy because it has a 7%, 8% grade on average of steepness. Uh, but what's beautiful about that ride, even though you're straining and it's hard and you know, it's like, why am I doing this? Um, is because Provence, which is where the Mont Ventoux is, it's the highest, uh, uh point, uh, in that region is one of the most beautiful regions for me of France. Um, not because grass, which isn't in Provence per se, it's not that far away from that department, but um, the mountainous regions uh, north of Marseille and Avignon uh, are beautiful, beautiful places. And you get into the area of the lavender fields. And um, lavender is one of my most favorite notes. Um, It's very universal. It's loved all over the world. And it is a clean, uh, fresh, airy, memorable type of a note. 
and these fields that go on, the beautiful colors. And in the south of France in general, um, you have these incredible kitchen herbs, which are very popular in fragrance today, tarragon um, and um, fennel uh, as an example. And you can almost close your eyes and smell these as you go. And in, depending on the time of the year, if you're there in October and you smell some burning leaves and you smell um, chimneys and fireplaces and burning wood, um, it just envelops the, the valleys. And as you ride through these twisty roads, whether it's in the south of France or whether it's in Tuscany, um, these stay with you forever. And for me, that type of a vacation, even though I'm not relaxing somewhere on a beach or sleeping, I'm working my legs pretty hard and I'm out of breath and I'm being affected by the altitude or whatever it might be, I still find joy in that because olfactively, um, I'm, you know, I've got a circus going on in my nose and, uh, I love it is that. very memorable. As I said, it's very memorable and it really brings a lot of joy to me. Well, yeah, thank we you all for taking go there us. too. <laughs> yes. Thank you for taking us on your journey and sharing that. Teo, how can our audience reach out to you if they have questions and would love to learn more about you and for Manish and how they can work with you? Well, uh, I work at Firmanish, which I should say is a wonderful company. It's the largest privately held family owned company in the world. Uh, it's based in Geneva. Um, as I said, I've been there for 29 years, so uh, I must really like it. Uh, but it's it got filled with wonderful people and frankly, the finest perfumers in the world, the most talented, lovely people in the world. And uh, so I am at Firminish and um, they can drop me an email or find me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect with people all the time. As I said, I love meeting people, uh, talking to them about my passion. If they want to do their own fragrance, I'm happy to listen to that too. Wow. Thank you so much, Teo, for sharing your journey and your insights and your passion and your love of the industry and fragrance. We all love it too very much and have a lot of respect for all of the people that bring beauty and fragrance to the world. Um, this is Abby Wallach signing off for Beauty Is Your Business with my fabulous co-host, April Franzino. Thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. This has been Beauty Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.